You know, typically um, at Vintage Youth, we try to go through the same books that we go through as a church. But when Jude came up, I'm like, yeah, I think the youth ministry, we might just need to make sure we know Jesus there before we embark into Jude, because Jude is quite a task. And maybe this morning is a bit of the same invitation to invite us to know the Jesus who's standing behind Jude. It caught me as we were singing that phrase from Revelation, the two you are all things. And for you are all things, you deserve the glory. And I was reading it in the Greek, and it reads, Panta kai dea us thelma. That reads, all things were created for your pleasure. Do you know it's impossible to make that statement, you are worthy of it all, for through you all are all things and for you are all things, without acknowledging that Jesus is entirely God. It's not up to debate. Jesus is not lesser God, is not subsidiary God. He is God the same as the Father and the Spirit. And this morning, I want to invite us to contemplate that Jesus, especially as we embark out of Jude. We sang a song, You Can Have It All, Lord. And I was thinking about what kind of a God inspires that kind of response. And that's what I want us to investigate this morning. I'm going to go out of my comfort zone, which is the academic. I would way rather just teach one sentence in the Greek to you and pull out all the fine intricacies and just throw the information at you. That's my style. Where this morning is a bit more of an emotional appeal to us as a church to trust that Jesus who is speaking to us through Jude. I hesitate to do this because I, I hate getting personal on stage. Um, it's probably one of my worst nightmares. And I also don't want to do it because I have family in the room, but I was raised in the Baptist tradition. I grew up in a small fundamentalist Baptist church. And in many ways, that was a remarkable experience. I remember at probably age seven going in and the old people, and by old, I mean they were in their 80s and 90s. They weren't just like a little bit older than us. They were very elderly. They would always help us make coffee, much to our parents' despair. <laughs> I've often thought to myself, that's the closest you can get to sinning in the Baptist church without losing several years of your life. But that tradition taught me a lot of really beautiful things. I learned an incredibly large number of biblical stories because they were taught to me by the time I was probably three onward. But one thing I wasn't able to garner fully from that tradition was how the whole picture plugged together. You see, that church at times was probably a little more interested in using the Bible to dive into various social and political issues, not necessarily dive into the fundamental doctrines of Christian faith. So I didn't necessarily grow up hearing about God being a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit. I didn't necessarily grow up knowing what the sacrifice for sin meant on the cross. And I definitely didn't learn about the Holy Spirit and all His gifts. You would have probably been picked up by your shirt and thrown out the front door of that church if you embarked too far into that topic. So as I went to college, I began to get really angry at my upbringing. 
for maybe a couple good reasons, but mostly bad. My parents did a really good job. Um, and I explored a lot of different world religions and philosophies. I was in the giant black hole, depressing, terrible place of French atheistic existentialism, <laughs> which basically believes that life has no meaning, make it yourself. So I was living in that terrible place, and I started to hear that quiet invitation of Jesus, come and follow me, come and follow me. And I'm like, yeah, that's just religious shame coming in from my upbringing. That can't possibly be him. But I just kept hearing, come and follow me. Come and follow me. So finally I shrugged and said, well, even if Jesus isn't God, he changed the world more than any other person. So I might as well dive in and learn what he has to teach me. This morning I want us to see the face of the Jesus who said to me, come and follow me that could get an angry philosophy nerd in college who is ready to shoot sideways out into the world to turn around and go back to his voice. This can be a really difficult task. A couple weeks ago on August 22nd, Pastor Greg gave a teaching on the need to hear God's voice in prayer. It was the passage from Jude, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Spirit. He emphasized our need as believers to have a continual conversational life with God. One of the values held by Vintage City Church as long as I've been here, which is steadily approaching a decade, that's weird to think about, is that we would be a church that both hears God's voice and lives from it, having the discipline to invest in that relationship even when it's difficult. But throughout Greg's teaching, a looming question was egging both my heart and my mind. This was the question. What would we as pastors say to the person who is wounded in prayer? What do I mean by that? What would we tell the person who went in faith to prayer, said, God, I want to hear your voice. I'm surrendering all of myself to you. And they were met by God's seeming silence. What would we say to that person? You see, the need for prayer is incontestable. The New Testament scriptures continually emphasize the need to rely on and live from the Holy Spirit. There's no indications anywhere in the Old Testament or New that God's voice would just one day stop. Especially Paul's letters to Romans and Galatians remind me of this because everything in his letters always come back to a conversational life with God through the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit doing within you and how do you share it? So why is prayer a so lightly practiced discipline? Why for much of Christian history has it been seen as a little bit of an extra credit exercise? Why does a conversational relationship with God stir up so much confusion, fear, and sometimes anger within us? I know in my life, disobedience has been a factor. Going to prayer and being like, yeah, I know the Lord's will is different than mine and I don't want to submit. Nonetheless, that's not what I'm here to talk about this morning. If I am hearing God properly this morning... The purpose and the intention of this teaching is to be a heart check for those of us who feel their trust has been greatly affected by God's apparent silence. The many instances of God's seeming silence are kind of a shoved aside topic in our modern culture. You don't see a lot of pop-savvy Instagram sermons on God's silence. 
But yet throughout Christian history, countless figures and mystics and teachers have talked about how do we listen to the voice of God when He appears silent to us. One of my favorites who's going through a bit of a revival right now, his name was St. John of the Cross. He was a Carmelite monk from the 16th century, and he dedicated the entirety of his life to listening to the voice of God. His trusted friend, spiritual confidant, an occasional antagonist was a woman by the name of Teresa of Avila, and she has this quip that I love. It says, if this silence, O oh God, is how you treat your friends, it's no wonder you have so few. <laughs> for, some of these, for some of us, these short periods of silence become a place of great pain and perhaps even spiritual offendedness with God. So my question to us this morning is, how will we respond in our daily lives of prayer when God's momentary silence enters into the conversation? What could God be trying to accomplish within us these moments? What might His silence communicate about His character? And lastly, how might we learn to trust Him even in the silence? I don't even know where to begin with a topic as tremendous as this one. Thinkers and mystics throughout Christian history have dedicated their lives to investing in this topic far deeper than I can this morning. So my intention this morning isn't to provide us with answers, but instead with hope. The hope to pray when life and perhaps even prayer itself feels like an excruciating affair. For even when the silence of God seems perpetual and eternal in our lives, the psalmist Asaph promises us even the darkness, actually this is David, not Asaph, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So rather than thinking abstractly about God's silence, I want us to dive into the scriptures and explore what the silent face of God looked like in person. What did his bone and flesh look like? What does his expression in the concrete moment of history look like? I want us to turn to Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65. I'm sure all of us have heard this story before, but my invitation to you this morning is read it as though you're reading it for the first time. Let it hurt you. Let it scandalize you, let it offend you, and let it bother you. Because that's what happened to me the first time I read this passage. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes came together. And Peter was following at a distance right into the courtyard of the priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they could find none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Some stood up, lying against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will rebuild another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimonies were not in agreement the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? 
And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest ripped open his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You all have heard this blasphemy. What then is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And they began to spit on him, to cover his face, to strike him, screaming at him, Prophesy, you idiot. And the guards received him with blows and dragged him away. There's a thousand features to this passage, a thousand insights we might explore. For example, we could talk about how Jesus' silence stood against the lying and the deceiving of the priests, but yet his spoken answer affirmed the truth of who he was. We could talk about how according to Leviticus, the moment when Caiaphas ripped open his clothes in thoughtless indignation, he was actually giving over the priesthood to Jesus. He was abdicating his position according to Leviticus chapter 21, verse 10. We could discuss how Jesus in this moment models the unassured, the assured, uncomplaining obedience we are all called to exercise when accomplishing our Father's will. We might ponder how God's judgments in this story were communicated not through boisterous proclamations, but through a confident, harrowing silence. We might even consider all the ways in which Jesus' silence is intended to inform the way we love others. Rather than relying on our own emotional responsiveness and our talkative answers, perhaps we should love others with a reverent silence. All of these features and reflections are of great interest to me, yet they're not the purpose I feel compelled to share with you today. I want us to maintain a macro view of this story, dwelling on its overarching character. The overarching character of this story and the overarching character of Jesus in this story is his silence. The Greek term for silent here is aisiapa. Can you say it with me? Aisiapa. And the word is in an imperfect tense, which means rather than saying he remains silent, it would be more accurate and close to the Greek to say he was holding himself silent. There's an intentionality here. Jesus was choosing silence. God, in the midst of all the mocking, lying, betraying, posturing, was intentionally choosing silence. I believe there's a principle for us here this morning. There are moments in the historical past, and I would also submit to you in our daily times of prayer when God is going to choose to be intentionally silent. This isn't an accident. This isn't just the product of bad circumstances. This is God's free decision. And we're always so quick to assume God's motives in these moments. We assume He must be angry with us. He must not even see us. He must be indifferent to us. Maybe He's lost His patience. Perhaps He's unnoticing, disinterested. And if we were to tie all of these different feelings together, we might say something like, God in His silence has no intention towards me. 
And while these emotions might be overwhelming at times, we can rest in the truth we're not the first to feel them. Asaph in the 83rd Psalm will say, O God, do not keep silent. Do not hold your peace or be still. All of these feelings are important, and the Scriptures affirm that. (coughs) Nevertheless, I'm asking us this morning to place these passions to the side in order that we might relish in this moment of divine silence that Mark gives us. That rather than relying on our feelings in prayer, our disappointments in prayer, we might hold tightly to what the Scriptures have to say about God. I want us to fix our attention on the unfaltering, silent face of Jesus. Knowing that this is the very human face of God. I want us to fix our attention on the Son who sacrificed everything in silent obedience to his Father. I want us to fixate on the Father who in heartbreak silently turned away from his only beloved Son to be ridiculed and tormented by the crowds. I want to fix our attention on the Holy Spirit who is silently motivating Jesus' deliberate consent. This God... This God of Mark 14 and 15 is the same God who is sometimes silent in our prayers. This is what his silence looks like. Colossians 1.15 will write, He is the image of the invisible God. In a similar way, this, a great church father named Cyril of Alexandria would say at the Council of Ephesus, The human nature of Jesus is a perfect representation of his divine nature. And while this moment might not be the picture our feelings create, nevertheless, they are what the scriptures reveal. This is the quintessential moment of God's silence. And in Jesus in this moment, in Mark 14, there is no apathy, no thoughtless indifference, no callousness towards human pain, Only a love lived out supremely in a willful silence. The silence of God, just like the love of God, is always intentional. So how are we to respond to that silence? Because it's so hard. It's so hard when you hear your friends saying, I've heard this from God in prayer, and you're like, when I go to prayer, I don't hear anything right now. How are we to live this out? I do not possess a list of hardened and concrete application points. Maybe next time you can tell me, Dustin, just stick to theology, no more emotional appeals. And I'll be like, thank you. (laughs) Instead, I want to outline for us a couple practical invitations, simple responses we might live into when experiencing God's silence in prayer. The first one is this. When you experience God's silence, lay down your weapons. What do I mean by that? Hours earlier in Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells the temple guard at the Garden of Gethsemane, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and speaking, and yet you did not arrest me. 
But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Just like the temple guard, it is not God who approaches us in hostility. Instead, it is us who approach the silent God with our weapons. What do our weapons look like? Well, I can tell you what they look like for me. The expectation that he's going to fail me. That's one of my weapons discontentment with the season he's asking me to live in. That's another one of my weapons. But you know what my most important weapon is in fighting the purposes of God in his silence? A hostile interpretation of the character that rests behind his silence. Not trusting him. And if we say, well, this is just a message for Jesus' accusers. I'm not like the temple guards. I'm a friend of Jesus, not a foe. Well, it speaks to us as his friends, too. Remember, it was Jesus' friends and disciples who deserted him in this quiet moment. It was his friend and self-proclaimed most faithful disciple, Peter, who experienced conviction for his prophetically foretold betrayal in the same trial he seen where Jesus was intentionally choosing silence. God's Intentional silence is a call for us to lay down our weapons and our hostile interpretations of his character. It's intended to both center and disarm us, calling us back to the intentionality of his love. Here's my second invitation for us. Allow his silence to create in you memory of what he's already spoken to you. Remember, it was God's silence that confirmed what he had told his friends, the prophets. The prophet Isaiah wrote approximately 800 years before this moment. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. God often speaks through silence to draw our attention back to what he's already spoken both in Scripture and in our conversational lives of prayer, where we live with Him and encounter Him every day. If God is not speaking to you now, remember what He has already said to you. Lastly, I believe God's silence is an invitation for us to know that He understands our pain. As Hebrews 2.17 declares, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. God's silence demonstrates he recognizes the gravity of our suffering. God's refusal to speak is never rooted in an indifference towards your pain. Rather, the awe-inspiring silence of Jesus demonstrates that God takes your weaknesses just like mine seriously, and he refuses to engage in those talkative, obnoxious, unthoughtful answers we so often give when our friends are suffering. God's silence is different. Even the doubts and the feelings of abandonment we experience when God seems silent were bore by God the Son on the cross when he quoted the psalmist saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When you feel forsaken by God, his silence is a reminder that he's felt forsaken too. 
There's no punishment for sin and no despair of suffering that Jesus did not experience to an infinite degree in an intentional, loving silence. So as we close this morning, I pray that it's clear that silence occupies a necessary place in our lives of prayer. It's a part of listening to His voice. And as my wife Kelly so beautifully said last week, and I told her, yeah, I'm ripping that off for this teaching. Every meaningful conversation is known by both its words and its pauses. Sometimes God pauses to speak. And God has laid before us the task of uncovering His voice. And the biblical practice of prayer demands our acknowledgement that sometimes God speaks through words, sometimes He speaks through Scripture, and sometimes He speaks through silence. The Japanese Catholic author Shishako Endo ended one of his famous books, Silence, with a quote, It was in the silence, God, that I learned to hear your voice. I want to submit to us all another simple and somewhat annoying truth. We cannot possibly know every motive for God's silence. We don't even know every motive for Jesus' silence in Mark 14. There are those who have said Jesus was only being quiet because he didn't want to dignify the false accusations with a response. Others have said Jesus' silence demonstrates that he was passively obeying his Father, Well, still others have said, Jesus wasn't being silent. He was just waiting for the right moment to speak. And while all of these answers might be well and good, and perhaps in some ways even true, they seem a glib, partial explanation of the profound silence Jesus shows in this moment. The silence of carrying the forsakenness of all of humanity. I don't have grand answers. All I know is the God of all eternity chose to be intentionally and lovingly silent. I bet the teaching team could give an entire series on all the ways God's words and God's silence work together in the lives of different biblical characters. But today I just want to share with you a story well, want to is maybe the wrong way to say it. I feel like I'm supposed to share with you a story of God's silence from my life. Several years ago, I was going through a season that could probably be categorized the most painful season of my entire life. I felt and was very betrayed by a person I held dearly. And all of my friends, especially my friends on the pastoral team, kept encouraging me, go hear God's voice, go hear God's voice. You're not going to be able to know how to respond if you don't hear him. And that was the right thing to say. I want to emphasize that. That was the right and proper thing to say. Yet every day when I went to my daily time of prayer at about 7 a.m., God was quiet. I didn't hear anything. Days went by, and I still didn't hear anything. Two months went by, and I hadn't heard anything. And all the meanwhile, everyone was giving me various forms of advice, which swung anywhere between the extreme of find all vengeance necessary and do it, to you're not being forgiving enough, you need to be more gracious. And I was getting pulled like this, wondering what on earth am I supposed to do? 
And after two months of that, I sat in front of the fireplace and God started to speak. I was probably rolling my eyes the moment he started to speak because I'm like, God's not talking. He's not saying anything in the midst of this. And I was so indignant. I was like, God, where were you? I really needed you. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. Sorry. I wanted to be like you. Yet I failed every day. Why weren't you talking to me? And God's response to me in that moment is everyone else was talking. I was just quietly grieving your pain. If I had not waited, I never would have heard that. All the suffering would have seemed meaningless. My challenge to us as a church is have the courage to pray even when it's hard. Pray in the silence and don't shortcut the process. If I hadn't have waited, I never would have heard that. I never would have known the ways God had cared. We need to know that God speaks both through words and quietness. If God has gone silent in your life, perhaps his invitation to you right now is that you would let your life go silent. Who knows what God could be accomplishing within you in this season. God has promised to speak to you through the scriptures. You only need to wait for it. Our responsibility is simple. That we would commit to being a people who would pray and trust in his voice both through the words and through the silence. And I'm so humbled to even talk about this to you because it's such a massive and such a painful topic for all of us. But you have to trust the Jesus you see in Mark 14 knowing that he does care. And he will speak. You need only wait for it. So if you would with me, I want to invite everyone to stand. I want to pray over you. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, I invite you into this room right now. You, if anyone, knows how hard it is to experience the silence of God. Lord, I pray for all the hearts within this room who have been wounded by your silence, who feel like they cannot trust in you. I pray your words to the disabled man when you said, do you want to be healed? Lord, I pray that the desire and prayer would be given to each one of us that we would want to be healed, that there would no longer be heartbreak, there would no longer be offendedness or a lack of trust, but instead we would see your silent, loving, suffering face, and we would say, God, I trust you, and I know you're going to speak to me. Lord, I pray that healing over every single person in this room. We know that there's no shame here. You bore our shame and you understand it. Heal us and give us the desire to pray even when it's hard. We love you. We honor you.
You can be seated.